This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we have a conversation with Simon Fraser University, Professor Emeritus. John Clegg joins us to talk about a new island in the Pacific, the anatomy of tectonic plates, and comparing mountains to volcanic islands, how it all works, plus geography in and around Canada, and understanding La Nina for this winter. Sean M. Maloney, Professor at the Royal Military College of Canada, joins the Shift to talk to us about nuclear threats, Canada's involvement in that, and the reaction that Canada needs to have to protect itself from Russia in and around Ukraine. We talk about propaganda and everything that impacts Canada from Russia because of our relationship with Ukraine and our proximity over the North Pole to Russia. This is the Shift Podcast. Here on the Shift, I've said many, many times that we need to pay very close attention to what's going on in Ukraine. I feel very proud of the stand we've taken with our Ukrainian friends, and I've shared with you, I don't think that It took us a while to realize the access level we have been given here on the shift professionally to these people in Ukraine. Like these are people don't get time on any phone call with the people that we get to share with, let alone they give us time consistently here. We get to learn what happens in Ukraine through the eyes and the words of a Ukrainian, not through the media, not through anybody else. These are the people that are working in it and around it every day. Japan. And Russia have disputed islands. And I've said all along, and I don't mean to sound too righteous, but allow me that space because I think it matters. I think it's a stand worth taking. Canada has disputed islands with Russia. Canada, Russia borders on Canada over to the top. We need to pay very close attention to what is going on. And this is where we get into conversation with Sean Maloney, professor of history, Royal Military College of Canada. And military history, Sean, has literally been your jam forever. Exactly. I started off as the uh, the army's historian in Germany at the end of the Cold War. Saw that end game. I was in the Balkans back and forth in the 1990s. And uh, after 9-11, I became the historian of the Canadian Army for the war in Afghanistan for 12 years. Um, fascinating. Uh, let's go to the, the, the obvious piece then. If you saw the end of the East German that whole thing, and then you've got the wall coming down and all the things there, you probably have done a fair work of study on Mr. Vladimir Putin, because he was very much there for that. Oh, there's been, there's been a lot of... Actually, when we after 2014, those of us that were interested in what was going on, the, the, the field just exploded, trying to understand what had been going on in the previous 15 years. And again, a lot of us have been involved overseas in other operations, and in 2014... It was very shocking to see that actually go down. Equally shocking to see that it wasn't opposed except by the Ukrainians. So yeah. that got me reinterested, reinterested in the on the Russia file. And I'd done a lot of work in the past on nuclear weapons, of course. So uh, this this became very fascinating. How did they get to that point? What were we going to do about it? What was going to happen next? And then here we are after the events of uh, February this year. Yeah. And we will get to the the urgency of the conversation for today. I just want to touch on that. In 2014 with Crimea, Sean, we had like this situation that everyone kind of went, oops, right around the international community. And then, oh, well, I'm sure it's not that bad. But then everyone got complacent again and nobody really took it seriously when really if hindsight, of course, cliche 2020. But when you go back and you look at this, all of the clues have been there all along. Ukrainians have said it all along and the rest of the world now is has been as of february anyway very flat-footed some get your thoughts on that might include to say today still flat-footed and um and here we are today so it's not like this should truly be a surprise to anybody no and in fact what happened in 2014 went beyond crimea i mean there 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 were uh operations in other parts of ukraine some of them which succeeded i.e luhansk and uh, donetsk and elsewhere that failed um, the plan, I think, back then was to go as far as they could and take as much as they could. And the Ukrainians fought back and threw everything they had at it ad hoc and were able to hold them. Um, and then that becomes what we would call frozen conflict, where there's no peace, no war. And the question was, what was the next move going to be? But it was the, it was the Russian ideology that was really the clue here. And it's so bizarre and obscure that only the Russians and people that study them really understood it. So... The, the laydown for this had occurred 
probably starting between 2000 and 2007. And it would have been very hard to detect except by people that really specialized in it. So when you, when you get into this, it, it, it literally, they literally believe and have established a, a neology that thinks that there is a neo-Nazi Zionist LGBTQ conspiracy to destroy Russia and that it's coming out of Ukraine. And as, as bizarre as it sounds to us, the more you look into this, the more you listen to what Patriarch Kyrill is saying, um, you start looking at the people like uh, guys like Dugan, who have been theorizing about this for quite some time. When you go back and look at it, it's all there. It's just, it's almost too, we're almost too incredulous about it because it's, it's tremendously bizarre. There's been uh, quite a few essays written. Um, Putin himself has written some essays and people who I have not read them, but some people that I know have, and they say that that's also been very telling for professionals like you when you literally read how sort of, I I would say it's old, this old imperialistic mentality of we're just going to take over the world and own the world. Like, what (laughs) century are you in? Oh, yeah. And when you read this stuff, it's even weirder. And when you, again, when you read guys like Dugan, it's almost like, um, it's like mind conference Cyrillic or it's what they, what we call Eurasianism or Euro Asianism, which has this, it's basically what we used to call geopolitics and it comes out of the thirties and the, the, the national socialist Germans were heavily into that kind of thinking. And you can, it's almost, it's, it's, it's all recycled stuff from the past, but assembled in a way using social media and other media techniques, they call it political technology and educational system that convince people of this. They're already working on the next generation. I mean, I saw a video of a bunch of kids singing about recovering Alaska. Okay. Wow. And again, our media really doesn't cover this because one, it's, it seems utterly bizarre. Two, and there's a language barrier. And, <laughs> but it's there. And to ignore it is not a good idea. And we're now seeing what happens when you do ignore this kind of thing. They literally believe we are Satan. I, I've literally watched... Uh, Russian Orthodox priests telling bereaved loved ones that their kids died in Ukraine fighting Satan. I've got pictures of, of Russian Orthodox priests blessing nuclear weapons. Okay. And I re- actually tried to write about this several years ago, and it, nobody wanted to publish it. It was just too out of, out of, the, out of, the, out of this world for it. But it was, it was there. There were, there were specialists writing about this four, five, and six years ago. Now, if we take this just as two people, Sean and Shane, and we can say, okay, well, we're just two Canadians, um, everything that we see in our social circles in these days is exactly the opposite of what you're talking about. We as a civilization, you and I as Canadians in our normal days, work towards creating a world where everybody feels like they belong and they have the same opportunities to succeed and all of that stuff. That is a normal fiber of, safe to say, most Canadians' days these days. And if this is the antithesis of that, so polarly that way, it really is surprising how it's not in front of us. Because when you talk about some of the social causes that go on in the world today about standing up for people's rights, this is as far as it gets the other direction. And nobody seems to give a damn. Well, I think in my view in Canada, we're distracted with a lot of things here with our domestic problems. And we're at a point where we, we got a country ourselves that, that is divided itself. And it's very clear to me from looking at the specialists that study how this works, that our opponents will fund both left and right. And there are people that just don't want to admit it and they don't want mm-hmm. to talk about it. The security apparatus doesn't want to talk about it in public because they're not sure what it'll, what it'll do. Um, and it's not just a question of control. It's a question of generating disruption. Yeah. That's what people here have a difficulty understand. We're pretty rational people. We think that everything's done for a specific purpose and it's logical and rational. And in some cases, it's just designed to disrupt. So we're a country that has one of the largest Ukrainian diasporas, right? Is it a, a complete coincidence? We've got all sorts of social turmoil earlier this year during like during the lead up to the uh, the latest phase of the Russian invasion. Yeah. Yeah, makes total sense when you're looking at that. It's coincidental. And I know study the money and they watch how the money goes. It's pretty clear. 
Well, okay, there's a whole other conversation about Canadian ego, but you know, we think that America is worth tampering with, but not Canada. Like we're some sort oh, yeah. of immune. Why would they want to mess with us? But the reality is, is that in the world where they can plant information and send out information and uh, propaganda, manipulate whatever, they, I mean, got to call it for what it is, Sean. They're masterful at manipulation and at conditioning of young people and planting the message like this is a masterful plan if you and i did this about a business plan about sneakers and we were this intentional about planting that they're the best sneakers in the world the only ones that you need they're going to help you live forever and we created a business around nothing but sneakers that was this detailed we would be billionaires these people have created the perfect plan in their mind and it seems to be unfolding quite well and it's not new. And this is what's really interesting about it, because after the wall went down, colleagues of mine started drilling into the Soviet archives now in Russia. And over the past 20 to 30 years, been doing a lot of scholarship on this. It's highly specialized. And they've confirmed pretty much what we knew, that there, re- that there really was a communist conspiracy. Now, it's all joked about, and it's been mishandled by the McCarthy era and all that, but... We've got the primary sources. We know that they think this way, and they've been thinking this way since the 20s. So what we're seeing with uh, with Putin and crew, they've recycled the techniques, and they're using modern social media to speed it up and disseminate it very quickly. But it, it's almost the same thing in many ways. It's just it, it's much more sophisticated, and they've studied us for years. They're looking to disrupt. They're looking to, most importantly, they're trying to get us to question our institutions and our value system. And that's what's happening right now. I mean, we're engaged in what's, what amounts to a cultural revolution in this country the past couple mm-hmm. of years. So uh, until people realize that that's what's going on and that uh, they're basically being tampered with, I'm not sure what to do about it except educate people and how this stuff works. And it's Now, let me take that. I'll translate that into something that's completely unrelatable yeah. that we also see going on. I think it's widely accepted that TikTok as a platform in China educates the algorithms put smart videos inspiring videos in front of the young people while that exact same platform in north america puts the stupidest silliest videos in front of the kids all the time consume it gobble it up da 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 da. so if that can happen with just one app imagine what could happen on tide pods okay i got i got a a friend of mine that studied the tide pod thing and and they're convinced that's some form of social sabotage okay yeah and it sounds outlandish and so then you spread a bunch like of rumors that it's just conspiracy theory. Well, no, yeah. it's, it's this is how it works. Well, test right, like yeah. see if they will do it. See yeah, if you can pull it off. Okay, believe it. that we can we can go on about this uh, until the cows come home, and I have no problem doing that, Sean. We can do this again and again and again. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, but now that we've established how serious and legitimately interwoven this stuff is into our lives, let's get right into the meat and potatoes of what our friends in Ukraine are saying. Our friends in Ukraine are buying rain jackets. They are buying all the things that they can do to protect themselves from a nuclear attack in case it happens, in case there is the old school acid rain phrase and all these other things they feel better when they can protect themselves if these people are working this hard to feel better about it let's talk about the seriousness of nuclear and what canada needs to do to be ready for this because like i said off the top if canada thinks that we're not involved in this we are 100 involved in this i guarantee it i guarantee it i guarantee that the other side's war planning is basically to destroy every ten thousand foot runway in this country and in the united states among other things, uh, and they have the ability to do that. The uh, On the nuclear side, and again, I speak as somebody who's been to Chernobyl and experienced radiation, Radi- that, that itself is a terrifying construct. We've all been brought up that way, right? Well, the other side definitely capitalizes on this. I've actually been tracking one of their information operations, or what I'm pretty sure is, and this is where it gets murky, but, but fundamentally... They've made several nuclear threats, whether it's Dmitry Medvedev or it's Vladimir Putin. Um, and you can correlate that with their other activity. So they want us to be afraid. Okay. That's what they want. And they will use that as a, as a, a highway to get what they want. So do you want me to walk through a specific example? 
I think that, yeah, maybe one specific example, and I'll, I'll just reestablish for those who are just joining us. Sean uh, Maloney is a professor of history at Royal Military College of Canada. He's written a bunch of books, um, including stuff about nuclear, too. So this is literally the look that you study constantly in right. what it is. So what's one digestible example that we can yeah. understand? Because nuclear is a big notion. So let's we've, get into the nuts and bolts. We've watched this unfold literally over the past few days. Okay, yeah. so... Evita makes a nuclear threat. The pipelines are blowing up in the in the uh, in the Baltic, right? And right. then Putin announces annexation of occupied Ukraine, and then he threatens nuclear weapons use. The next day, and for the next three days after that, there's specific material leaked into social media, which then it's like releasing a wild animal in, in, amongst people, and it winds up making the mainstream media in three out of the four occasions. So, and that that blows up in various various venues in Europe and here, uh, and people are like, okay, so they're serious. And then all of a sudden, on day four, Elon Musk comes up with, I have a peace plan. Okay? Uh It's it's not a coincidence that you've got this generalized fear that's generated by the threats. People are talking about it. And then there are these specific things that could be specific threats, which amps that up even higher. And then all of a sudden, a potential savior there, right? So. So that's sort of what we've been looking at. And uh, how do you counteract that? Well, we know that they've got a tremendous nuclear capability. And we know that the only way to stop it from being used is through deterrence. So there are things that are going on that people don't see or specialists see to offset what the Russians are doing. And they've been called out on it. You saw Biden's uh, interview on CNN. He was very, very clear about that. There's a whole bunch of other things. That That was the apocalyptic one, right? When he... Kind of threw some phrases around that seemed to surprise some people. Is that the yeah? One? There were two of them. There was one he yeah. gave it a fundraiser and he amplified it on a CNN interview. So he made it very, very clear that there was a deterrent umbrella in place uh, within NATO and, and in the West. So, and that's been backed up with the movements of things like aircraft and submarines and ships and and other other resources. Yeah. And so, what does Putin do? He blinks. He he's been threatening nuclear weapons use. Then he doesn't do it. Then he unleashes this campaign to destroy infrastructure in Ukraine with conventional yeah. weapons. Well, and that's what he did with the rockets because he went after yeah. electricity. He went after yeah. the basics, which really was one of the first times that he actually went after some of the basics on such a level. It was 70-some rockets. Yeah, exactly. It may have, and it may have been more because not all of them would have worked. But yeah. um, but this, this satisfied two purposes for him. One, he can accomplish some of his objectives by saying, oh, look, I used conventional. I didn't go nuclear, so you should be happy about that. But I still got the nuclear stuff. And then he had a lot of critics building up after the Kharkiv offensive. And um, and there was all the speculation about he might be removed. Well, those voices have gone silent after the bombings of of Ukraine with the cruise missiles. So you put this all together, it's all very, very calculated. And yet we can't see any... They're not. They're not presenting a posture where they're prepared to to nuke us. Okay, that we can yeah. see. They can threaten it. They can move some things around. But we got to be prepared for that. So they'll fly nuclear bombers up in the Arctic. So we have to respond and keep an eye on that. Same with that sea with the submarines. So uh, again, there's a lot of activity like that. I can go into specifics of it because again, the media doesn't see it. Our guest here on the shift is Sean M. Maloney. He is a professor of history at Royal Military College of Canada, talking about geopolitics and all of the jockeying that's going on from all of the information, misinformation, and war footing that's happening around the world today. Sean, what did you say it's happening like? This is like a chess game. A chess game. So let's talk about the chess game because we did say that Canada was involved with this. And, and I mean, you can get into anything. Minerals, resources, you can get into any of it. You can get into just the overarching values, f- values and philosophy. Values. Right? I mean, look, yeah. look at what our value system is versus theirs. That's a, right. that's, that's a clash of values right there, which is a, a it is. in the war. It's not all military. It's economic. It's values. It's everything, right? Yeah. And it's so if coming over, if the idea is flying bombers over the North Pole and all those things, which I first thing that comes to mean is the amount of commercial air traffic that flies over there as a shortcut. I mean, that in one thing seems very, very vulnerable and fragile to me. Uh, the other part would be um, 
how does Canada prepare and can we prepare to deal with this? Are we prepared to deal with this when we've got all this activity that's literally in our backyard? Well, our first line of defense, obviously, is NORAD, an, an organization, an alliance that's existed since the 1950s specifically for this purpose, to identify and counteract threats as part of a larger deterrent system. Remember that, that ultimately Canadian security is based on the American nuclear deterrent. Whether people yeah. want to believe it or like it or not, that's just the way it is. And so providing early warning as part of a deterrent measure to make sure it isn't incapacitated is part of what we do. It's watching space. It's watching the Arctic. It's watching the oceans. That's, that's one part of it. The other part, of course, is forward defense over in Europe as part of NATO and our commitments in the, the Asia-Pacific region. So we want to keep it away from here as much as possible. We want to deter it. And the trick here is we don't want to compromise your value system while we're doing it. That's yep. that's the balance we've got here. And that means we've yeah, got to contribute to what's going on. Compromise. I mean, I suppose just, that would be. We can't just sit here and let everybody else do it. We're part of it. We're, yeah. part, we're well, part of the coalition. Compromising value system at the same time as um, not sticking up for the same values. I've always taken the opinion that silence is endorsement too, though, right? So. Yeah. Right. So if we're silent and we're not really standing up, like I realize it could be against the values to hurt people. But at the same time, if we're not protecting the people that we're supposed to protect, that's also not protecting the values. And and maybe that's too simplistic of a look, Sean. But when you're talking about it, I agree with you on that. the, The thing here is, is that there's too many people here that think that the Russians are just like us. They're not. They have a whole different outlook on life. They have a whole different philosophy, whole different religion whole different way of going about things in the world. They don't want the same things we want. And that's hard for Canadians to swallow because Canadians want to think that everybody is like us. And the, and mm-hmm. my experience, they're not. And again, I've been in the Balkans, Middle East, and Afghanistan. And uh, I'll tell you that we are on an island here in North America sometimes with some outstations in the Pacific and in Europe. There are mm-hmm. a lot of people that don't believe the same things we do. And then, of course, we're being attacked as being colonialists and all that other jargon to undermine our sense of who we are, right? So that's arguably part of it, part of the problem. Is that information the biggest part of this war, Sean? I mean, we can talk about jets and submarines and nuclear warheads, but is this information, uh, is that the war that's happening, this digital function of info, hands down? Yes, I'd say... That cyber overlaps with that, definitely. Information operations through uh, social media means, tampering with our hospitals through uh, threat, through holding them hostage, yeah. all of that. We call it gray zone warfare, or in, in Russian terms, Gibrini uh, methodi, which means hybrid method, and it's in their doctrine, and we've been studying this for some time, and they they've let us know it, which is equally interesting. Because they think we can't do anything about it. Yeah, I know. But the first step I'm, here is like awareness, like any twelve-step program, right? Right. You guys have to acknowledge that it's a thing. Yeah, and that's the main issue here. We've got we're so divided and inward-looking that we don't really know who we are, what we believe, where that fits into the world. There's many people here in Canada that think the U.S. is the enemy, and there's an inherent anti-Americanism as part of the Canadian culture anyway and the other side plays to that um one of the biggest weapons is is moral equivalency and once you establish moral equivalency then the other the the other side can do whatever it wants because it knows we're not going to do anything reality is that our value system is incompatible with what they are trying to do which is expansionistic and disruptive and that's not what we want so instead of apples and oranges we're talking apples and car tires pretty much so uh short-term look what you're seeing now i mean we are going to connect to ukraine here on the shift next week like we always do we're going to hear the stories about rockets i've got some um twitter videos of a young lady walking down the street where a rocket flew over her head and landed about a block or so away you can hear the glass go clink 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 um we have to get a a ukrainian to filter the language that she used to make sure that we're clear on i don't know what she said right um so what in the short term are we are we looking at okay. here as Canadians and our look on Ukraine that we really need that we can benefit by watching? Okay. The resilience of the Ukrainian people is tremendous. I'm biased. My wife's Ukrainian and I've been there. But reality, Hitler threw V1s and V2s at London throughout 1944 
And did it alter the outcome of the war? No. And essentially, this is where, where Putin's at. He's throwing the equivalent of that at Ukraine. And it's not going to change anything. It's not going to stop them. It's not going to convince them to quit. By getting the Ukraine supporters convinced to stop supporting Ukraine is where he can win. Mm-hmm. That's why value systems here, understanding what's really going on over here and how it relates to there is so important. And you can see him. He's, he's, using, he's, he's going after the Germans big time. You can see the Germans are under attack by hybrid methods. We've been subjected to them. Uh, Norway is subjected to them. Almost nobody hears about that and yeah. so on. So if he can undermine support for Ukraine by undermining it in Canada... And he's, he gets a win. There's no doubt about that. And the, anybody that's arguing that Ukraine should suddenly do a deal and stop fighting, that's exactly what the other side wants. Yeah. And paradoxically, a lot of people obviously don't like war. But remember, it's Putin and his clique that have put us there. We didn't do this. They are the ones that put us here. If they're working so hard at younger generations, like you said, singing songs like Taking Alaska Back... If they're working so hard, I mean, do we just need to accept at this point that this is a generational problem that will take a long time to yes, flush out of humanity? Absolutely. That is exactly it. This is like 1946, and we fought a Cold War for 42 years, half of that in my lifetime. That's where yeah. we're going. We're going back to something like that. Even if the, if the Putin clique is overthrown, you still are going to have a problem with inside Russia. It has so many nuclear weapons and extreme people there. So the question is going to be how to contain it or, or unless it implodes on itself. Yeah. It doesn't create its own vacuum of getting worse. The like we've, we've seen got elsewhere. here is that we've got a political system where the horizon's five years, right? And we have an educational right. system that hasn't explained this to anybody. How many, how many people are taught the cold war in school? Almost none. Cause I get them in university and they don't know anything about it. That's a 42 year old conflict, 42 year old, conflict that we fought Canada was part of. Canada acquired nuclear delivery systems as part of that conflict, as part of deterrence. Almost nobody knows anything about that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Right. So I wrote a whole book about it if you want to read it. <laughs> okay, great. I love it. Uh, well, we will put uh, is that there's a landing web page where we can direct people to your books that we can post just so people can pick and choose. Is- um, com. Great. I will post that at shiftheads.ca as well and link everyone directly. So you can take a look at some of the books Sean has written. Sean, we have much more to dig into. So please, I, without looking like I'm begging you, I'm begging you uh, to come back with us and let's just Absolutely. dig into this. Yep. I, I'm such a big believer that we learn more. We can learn more about what's truly going on with information. I, in my writing, Sean, it's uh, knowledge is useless until we share it. Yes. Knowledge has no value. Until we share it with other people. Right? There's too many people that hoard information. Well, I provide people the way I look at things. They can accept or reject it. Mm -hmm. At least it's out there. It's fascinating. Professor of History, Royal Military College of Canada. This is what he does. And uh, now friend of the shift. And I appreciate you, Sean. And and it's fascinating. And and let's, let's dig into this some more. Let's shed some light on it. Anytime. This is the Shift Podcast. Well, I don't know if it's been nice where you have been. It's been beautiful here in Alberta. And even though we do broadcast all all across the country, I think it's safe to say that it has been quite a beautiful fall. I know in eastern Ontario, it's been a little bit more like a normal fall, a little bit cooler, a little bit damp. But for the most part... um, you know, this half of the country has been incredibly beautiful. And uh, John Clegg is here to chat about all things, uh, well, frankly, nice fall, I guess, really, is what it boils down to. Hi, John. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for being here and uh, getting into this conversation. It's been quite beautiful. And uh, Brendan Kelly, our technical operator, he's in Vancouver. Uh, just as grateful, I'm sure, for you to see such a beautiful fall. Oh, yeah. I, we have... I've lived in Vancouver for over 50 years and I've never, ever seen a fall so protracted. You know, uh, it hasn't rained in October in Vancouver. This is unheard of. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just beautiful weather. Uh, summer continues. And I think uh, uh, looking at the longer term forecast, we got another week of it, which is good. And then, of course, the deluge sets in. Well, typical wet coast. Yeah, real weather. life has to kick in sometime. Yeah, Jeff. it's got to kick in sometime. 
That's so good. Well, it has been beautiful, and I'm grateful, and I, I do believe the forecast here is about the same. It's about another week or eight days, nine days, and then we're back to what real life looks like, which is funny because everyone was excited. Hey, this could be the first year that Canadians don't have to wear a snowsuit over their Halloween costume, but it's... um. Yeah. It's going to be a pretty, pretty normal Halloween pretty by two weeks from now. Particularly for Calgary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, right? Okay, uh, John's with Simon Fraser University. He loves all things environmental, but at the same time, uh, his education is into sort of, uh, you know, not only the environmental studies, but, you know, tectonic and all the things that go on with the earth. Coming up here, we are going to talk about a brand new island in the Pacific. First, though, since we're talking about a nice fall, should we talk about La Nina and what this looks like? I think maybe we could reset that conversation, John, as I've learned through the climate conversation as... People with agendas make up new words in order to be like all climate when really the old words worked really great. Um, Can we just maybe reset La Nina conversation? Because I'm starting to hear all of these new words and phrases that scare people coming out. So I thought maybe we could just talk about it a little bit. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, La Nina and El Nino are pretty uh, well-established terms. I, I agree with you. There are many kind of terms that are bantied around in the kind of atmospheric science community that uh, uh, would seem foreign to people. A good example, although it's very descriptive, is atmospheric river. You know, that's the kind of a a term that those of us living in British Columbia became exposed to this time last year. Um, But La Nina and El Nino are are, are really climate-setting events. They, They impact the weather. They're totally natural. They refer to states in which the equatorial waters either anomalously warm, as in a El Nino event, or are anomalously cool. And this is an equatorial band. It's quite broad, and it extends right across the South Pacific. But it plays out as far as, it, you know, far, far away, all through the uh, Pacific Ocean. So during a La Nina, we typically get, uh, on average, we get cooler conditions in Western North America, uh, we would expect to get more snow in our mountains. Um, so Calgary, for example, might be a little cooler than normal um, on average, although the, you know the weather is superposed on these broad climate trends, so it's highly variable. And El Nino would be just the opposite on the West Coast. It would be warmer than normal. The North Pacific would be warmer than normal. So we would get uh, more rainfall than, than snow during, say, the late fall and spring. Um, so it does actually impact overall climate, although you, you might not notice these differences given the, the high variability of weather, you know, which is something very different from the average climatic yeah. conditions. Well, yeah, not to be lost in all that, there's that the weather and the climate, both separately and distinctively yeah. and together, change constantly, right? They, they, do. they, they do. do. And, you know, that's the thing is that we, I mean, what we're seeing sort of on the West Coast and in Alberta this fall is a little unusual, admittedly, but it's, and I don't think I've seen, a, as I mentioned, a, uh, a fall like this in the past over the past 50 years. Doesn't say it can't happen under normal conditions, um, but it is unusual. And, and for once, you know, we're experiencing something that's pleasant. Last year, we had uh, uh, extreme drought, you know, forest fires all over the place. We had this crazy flooding in southwestern BC. Yeah, that was bad. Um, so this year has treated us more nicely, and you know, I, I think than last year. Yeah, and worth noting too. I would uh, go as far as to say now the way I've understood La Nina and El Nino is that, and this is where I look for some correction, John, is that you know the wa- I understood it as the waters inside the ocean are constantly moving aside from currents, but like the temperature of the water is constantly kind of moving, just like clouds move in the sky. And at certain times of the year and under certain, you know, year over year, decade over decade patterns, water kind of goes here and then water kind of goes there. Is that what you mean by the temperature sort of changing? Yeah. Well, it is, it's, it's, it's currents fundamentally, and it's, it's driven by the trade winds. So if you get a setup where you got strong trade winds that pushes the water, equatorial waters, to the west across the South Pacific from uh, Chile and Peru over to Australia. And if the trade winds fall off, you know, die down, then water kind of pools in that equatorial area and it gets warmer than normal. So that would be uh, an El Nino setup, but it's fundamentally driven by water circulation. And, um, you know, 
the atmosphere and the oceans are linked. Uh, when you get warm waters, you typically get a setup of the atmosphere that's different than it would be if the waters were cold. Um, but as I say, these this pattern of alternating El Nino, La Nina, El Nino, La Nina, um, on timescales of years to a decade have been going on forever. It's a natural, the natural phenomenon um, just represented to the inherent variability of the atmosphere and the oceans. And, um, it is interesting that it sets up in those two in members, although we're now beginning to see, well, it's not as clean as black and white. You know, you get conditions that are intermediate between these two states. But it's, uh, I'm not an atmospheric scientist by any means, yeah. but this is the subject of tens of thousands of papers. You know, these meteorologists and oceanographers have studied the heck out of uh, this phenomenon. And it'd be impossible to keep up with that one topic if you were really interested. Yeah, well, it is. It's it is neat, and I I just think it's always so good, right? When we change, you know, when some people change terms and it scares people, that's where I always reset. John, I know you and I like to have some really honest, curious conversations about what happens to the world and in the world. And um, you know, when they go from you know heat waves to heat domes, and then something bad happens, and it's it's scary to people. When they go from the Pineapple Express to atmospheric rivers and all these things and it scares people and so i think it's really cool we can celebrate the earth a little bit more i mean you're yeah. from the department of earth sciences as a professor emeritus right at asfu so you you have all the experience to help us understand a little better that you know what it is very exciting that the earth is changing like this is what it's supposed to do it is i i you know i of course am passionate about the earth and it's uh natural and maybe perturbed state but um, that's what drives me professionally is um, trying to understand how how this complex system operates. And one thing I've learned over the years is it's a really complex system. You know, you've got all these processes that interact with one another. I'm particularly fascinated, of course, by natural hazards. So all forms of natural hazards because they impact people. Um, but it's they're, they're complicated and they, they kind of are linked to one another in curious ways. So, you know, kind of the circulation of the jet or the pattern of the jet stream can, can impact uh, whether you have an ice storm in southern Ontario or, or not, you know, and uh, trying to kind of understand this complexity is pretty cool. And I'm it, it's humbling because we we still don't after, you know, two or three hundred years of better understanding the earth, we still don't fully understand it. There's a lot we don't understand about how the earth operates. And it's that's pretty cool, though, because you can keep, you know, keep studying. Here I am in my 70s, and I'm still uh, interested in these processes and um, how they play out, on, on particularly on the surface of the earth. So seismology, paleoseismology, and all things earth, earth's crusty parts. <laughs> this you love this right that's where hazards really i think yeah. uh, intersects for you because when the earth decides to shake that's pretty much the hazard of all hazards um i, I think that's a safe assumption as a non earth climate educated person like you are and since we're talking about the pacific and since we're talking about uh, the earth changing it seems like a good natural segue for us to talk about these brand new islands in the pacific did you get excited when you heard that Wow, yeah. Um, it's cool. It's not the first time it's happened, but um, these typically form as a result of volcanic eruptions. And uh, we had this uh, extraordinary eruption um, in, near Tonga. It was a volcano located uh, below sea level, actually. Um, it rose up from, I mean, it, it's a volcano that has been built up from deep, deep in the, the Pacific. And it just about is reaching the Earth's surface. And then in December, it started to erupt again and looked like it was going to play out as a new island. Um, and then, of course, just to fool around Mother Nature, fooling around with us, um, it kind of the activity, the volcanic activity played off at the beginning of the year, early January. So everyone thought, including all the scientists in Tonga, that there was no danger from this volcano erupting. But then it blew its top in mid-January, on January 15th, and uh, spewed this ridiculous amount, I can't even describe it, just ridiculous amount of, our, of ash and dust and water vapor from the ocean high into the atmosphere, higher than anything we've ever seen historically into the atmosphere. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and 
produced a pretty honking big tsunami. You know, it was uh, 20 meter high waves in Tonga. It was about 65 kilometers away from the volcano. And that tsunami was large enough to kill a couple of people in Peru. And uh, um, the tsunami was interesting. Um, scientists have found out that it was only partially a result of the blast of all that crustal material into the atmosphere. You'd think that would produce a tsunami, and it has been shown to uh, Krakatoa in 1883, which is the largest historic uh, eruption and tsunami we've known, um, did just that. But this one, we, we learned from the measurements that were made, it actually produced an air blast that drove the tsunami out from the, from the center of the volcano. And uh, it's partly that uh, meteorological, they call it a meteorological tsunami because it was the air blast that actually propagated it outward as opposed oh, yeah. to just, you know, kind of the volcanic eruption displacing all that material from the seafloor. Um, That's amazing. But, you know, this is an example where kind of a volcano um, is approaching the seafloor, create a new island. And we don't normally see that, but it's happened. There was a volcano off, um, uh, an eruption off Iceland back in the 70s uh, that produced a new island. And uh, it's interesting because you, of course, are creating these lavas at the sea surface, and the sea is trying to actively to destroy that island through waves and currents. Um, but if the volcanic activity is strong enough, um, that island can actually grow in size. And so examples of that would be Hawaii, the Hawaiian chain. You know, those are all islands that at one time uh, didn't exist. A million years ago, uh, Hawaii, the big island of Hawaii, didn't exist. And it's only through this uh, repeated eruptive activity from the submarine volcano that it actually built up to the sea surface and then expanded out from that. And it's still happening. When Kilauea erupts, you know, the flows commonly run down and, and you know, drop off right into the ocean. So you get mm -hmm. this incredible sight of molten lava um, being quenched as it discharges into the water. So cool. I made many, I, many treks down to the sea to see things. <laughs> I bet. Like I, um, I always find it fascinating. Some of those videos you see from the Hawaiian folks that, that like, here's just this lava just crossing the road. Right. Yeah. And it just, it goes where it wants to go. It goes through neighborhoods. It does. Oh, what it, yeah. All the cheaper homes in Hawaii, by the way, are in the, uh, you know, when you talk about floodplains in Canada, how you can get a good yeah. home for a good price in a floodplain. Well, yeah. when you're in the, uh, the risk of the magma flow, that's where you get a cheap house in Hawaii. Yeah. That's when, uh, you know, nature basically wins. <laughs> wins. Well, there's no stop. There's literally no stopping it. Right. Like there's no. nothing other than the water can do it. Yeah. I remember again, uh, there was, uh, an island off. Iceland, where they tried to stop uh, an erupt uh, lava flow that was erupting into a harbor, and they were using um, water. They were basically discharging water onto the front of the lava flow to cool it. And so the steam was coming up off the lava, and the lava continued to move forward. And it kind of showed how uh, pitiful, you know, human efforts are to yeah. stop something like That's that. Fascinating. <laughs> Well, this new island with Tonga is, uh, it's six acres as of about a month ago. Like it, it's quite large now that they've, it, I yeah. mean, it grew quick. Yeah. Um, it's again, there's this kind of, I call it a battle between the sea and, uh, the volcano. And if the volcano continues to be active, if it just doesn't shut off, it continues to be active. It will continue to build that, that island to a much larger size. And, uh, most of the, uh, marine bulk, you know, islands out in the middle of oceans are not all of them, but a lot of them are, are volcanic. It, they formed through this process. And in some cases, like Hawaii is an ancient volcano, you know, it, it built up to the size of a big volcano and four or five million years ago, it shut down. Basically, there was no more activity. And so the island is gradually being eroded away but it's built it was built to such a large size that of course now it's a populated island right that's fascinating okay so what about the rest of the earth then since we're talking about crusty things if these particular places are grown out of exploding volcanoes uh, how is it so different right i mean i get it that erosion and all those things over the course of time with rain carve 
holes in the ground. I know that in the Rockies, right, two tectonic plates pushing together. Yeah. Uh, is that basically what's happened? Is that parts of the earth got pushed up and parts of the earth fell down and that's why it's so uneven? Or how did that really even happen? Well, volcanoes, you know, they're kind of restricted in their occurrence. Uh, we typically find them in association with, with the boundaries between these the outer shells of the earth, which are all broken up into these plates. Um, so, most active volcanoes, in fact, uh, line the edge of the Pacific Basin, including this one in Tonga. And uh, if you go to mid-continent North America, well, you don't have to go that far. You can go to, to Alberta. You, you just don't find volcanoes because those areas are located within plates. Right? So these volcanoes commonly form at the boundaries between plates where you get this uh, tectonic collision going on. Um, but... You know, they do kind of create landscapes that uh, are superficially similar to, say, our landscapes. They're just different rock types. You know, the, the rocks that form the Rocky Mountains are all old marine rocks that have been thrust up, as you say, by the collision of North America and uh, a plate to the west. And uh, so uh, the, the beautiful landscapes you see in the Rocky Mountains in Banff and Jasper are really carved into those layered sedimentary rocks. Whereas volcanic islands, they're a little, I'd say, eh, well, you can call them kind of a little more boring. You know, <laughs> they're, they're all basalts and they're all dark. And I shouldn't say that as a geologist, but um, <laughs> they, they tend to be a little nondescript. So they have a different type of uh, character, a different type of landscapey character. Um, but they can be eroded into basically high hills and mountains. You know, um, you look at some of the active volcanoes, they're quite high. Mauna Loa, Mauna Kea, they, they rise up to almost 13,000 feet above sea level, you know, and uh, so they're, they're big mountains. Yeah. And beautiful mountains, glacier capped mountains. And our volcanoes on uh, the west coast of North America, you know, the, the Cascade Arc. Um, including Mount Rainier, Mount Baker, Mount Garibaldi, um, they, they, they stand out in that landscape. They're, they're kind of snow cones, you know, they're, they're high peaks that are clad by glaciers. And it's a different type of landscape, really, than, say, the Rocky Mountain landscape. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely stunning. Well, then, okay, so if we've got um, the Rockies sort of squished together with another plate, the Canadian Shield, though, that becomes very obvious where that pathway goes because you can literally follow it like a like a map, uh, the lines of the the shield. Um, but again, it's it's barely above sea level in a lot of ways. So, is it any different as we go that far towards the easter is central? Well, east it is of- because um, that is uh, really an ancient landscape. Um, the shields are the core. The, Canadian Shield is the core of old North America. You know, it's a part of North America that's existed for for billions of years. And uh, it used to be a mountainous topography. It used to be high mountains. Um, and it's been over the long period um, that that kind of landmass has existed, it's been ground down to almost, I wouldn't say sea level, but, you know, to those low elevations. So it's has very little... Uh, topographic expression. Um, and the rocks that form it are very, very different from Rocky Mountain rocks. These are old metamorphic rocks that uh, once were present deep, deep within the earth, you know, down at deep crustal levels. And they've been cooked up by the temperatures and pressures that existed a billion and two billion years ago. And uh, over time, you know, they have been thrust up high into the into the atmosphere and then eroded down. And so they're, they're kind of relics of uh, mountains of the past, you know, and uh, we have the largest shield on the planet on the plates and other plates have shields. Like there's a shield in the uh, South American uh, continent and there's one in Australia. There's one in uh, Eastern Europe. Um, These are the oldest parts of the earth's, that are preserved and geologists, you know, have kind of done a very good job of reconstructing the history of those parts of the continents. In contrast, you know, the Rockies um, are a very young part, I mean, young by a geologist, by a geologist's imagination, you know, 
the Rockies formed about 50 million years ago. And I know that sounds like a lot of time, but yeah. in the panoply of kind of Earth, Earth's history, that's a small drop in the bucket. So they're very young and they have this kind of modern looking appearance that you don't see on the Canadian Shield. Um, you know, the lakes, the shores of uh, Lake Superior and Lake Huron, you see these really old rock, beautiful rocks, you know, um, that kind of are featured in um, a group of seven paintings. Uh, they're unique. We don't see them anywhere else uh, other than beneath the Canadian Shield. Is there a John Clegg is, uh, is with us here on the shift. Is there a favorite? Can it like for a guy like you, are you allowed to have a favorite place that <laughs> still blows your mind today? I feel like I'm asking you which one's your favorite child. So, um, you know, are you, is there a favorite place you've lived in Vancouver for a long time? Yeah, That's probably well, a good start. I, I have, uh, it's a playground for me. I, I have to say, you know, for my professional life, uh, much of my, uh, geological sleuthing has been in British Columbia and the Yukon. Um, I, you know, later in my life, I spent a lot of time in uh, Patagonia, and I love Patagonia. You know, it's um, it's not forested, so the geology is in your face. It's really interesting geology. You can really tell stories, geological stories, based on what you see as a geologist. But I'm hard-pressed, you know. There's kind of, you know, it's it's my blessing, but also my curse. Whenever I go on a trip, kind of just... Focus in on the geology. Mm-hmm. Although I have to say of late, I've been uh, pretty keen on Italian food, too. So. Yeah. <laughs> you must drive your wife crazy, hey, when you guys <laughs> go out camping and you're walking oh, through yeah. the rivers or whatever, and then you all of a sudden well, stop. You know, I Shane, imagine her being like this, John, they're rocks, let's go. You know, Shane, I kind of feel uh, very fortunate. You know, I, I found something I love. Um, not everybody can say they have and, and made a career out of it. And so, you know, to me, geology is a passion as much as a, a profession. Um, it's fun. It's like being a, a detective without having to worry about the corpse. Hmm. Interesting. Very fascinating. I love it. Um, all right. John Clegg is here. There you go. Islands in the ocean. Brand new volcano islands, uh, six acres. I don't have an update. I've been trying to find an updated size on that. I'm assuming that rocks break and all those things. And and uh, then, of course, they get hot and then they move. So I don't know what the number is. But six acres is pretty good um, if you're looking for a bargain to yeah, go property if you're looking, shopping. You probably get a good deal on land. Get a good a lot, lot cheaper than, say, Calgary or Vancouver. <laughs> it is cheaper, I'm sure. Um, Although you'd have to deal with the volcanic bombs. And, there's you know, that. Super it's a bit of a fixer-upper. Yeah, a bit of a fixer-upper. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for being here, John. Appreciate it. My pleasure. <laughs> good to talk to you, Shane. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.